Good morning, amigos, comrades, brothers, sisters, all of you out there. This is uh, Jim coming to you from the road again. Uh, so, uh, yeah, normal preface. Uh, this is a podcast that I started during Shelter in Place. I was just kind of holed up in my place in San Francisco and thought, you know what, I'm going to start recording a podcast. I don't structure these things. I don't plan anything. I just turn on the tape and let it go, and whatever spills out of my head, that's what you're getting. So please don't expect much. And of course, the audio quality sucks because I'm not a professional recording engineer, and I don't have a studio or any gear. Yeah, with that caveat in place, I'd like to uh, make a correction from last time. Uh, my notes from the road when I was driving through Nebraska, I mentioned that uh, a truck driver flashed his lights at me when I merged in front of him, and I thought it was because... I wasn't leaving him enough space. Uh, I, I that that was what I gathered from like just I asked Siri to pull up an article online and I kind of glanced at it while I was driving, which you can't do that easily. I really don't use my phone when I'm driving; it uh, makes me nervous. Also, a goal for this podcast: I'm going to stop saying "uh" as much as possible. I listened to the one from yesterday, and it was absolutely terrible. Every other word sounds like an uh, so I'm going to try to avoid that. But I read an article, just glanced at it, and it seemed like truck drivers have a lot of problems. Like, they, they, they have a lot of trouble stopping. Like, trucks are so big that evidently, if you hit your brakes in a truck, there's, there's a system that kind of delays, like the, their air brakes, so if you hit the brakes in a truck, it has to distribute evenly the brakes, like applying the brakes through all 18 wheels, which there's a delay. It's not like in a car where it can happen immediately. And plus, you weigh so much that it takes a very long time to stop. So you have to give trucks a very, very wide berth when you are uh, cutting in front of them. I merged in front of a truck yesterday. I thought I was leaving enough space, but then they flashed their lights at me. And I, I interpreted that to mean that I, maybe I didn't leave enough space, but I actually looked it up. Apparently truckers will do that if you are in the left lane overtaking them. And as a courtesy, they sort of flash their lights at you to let you know, okay, you've cleared their personal space. Like as soon as you've hit the point when they're comfortable with you coming back in front of them, uh, then they will flash their lights at you. And apparently you can, you can thank them for doing this by once you're merged back in front of them and you cover some distance, you can tap your brakes twice just as a thank you. Apparently truckers have special lighting systems in their cars. Like time was they use their headlights and their brake lights to send signals to each other and to other vehicles. But this was so common, they just put special lighting systems into, car, in, into trucks, rather, that they could use to communicate. Uh, there's apparently a whole, a whole system of communication, like truck drivers will, if you see a truck driver flash his headlights at you, I think it's two or three times in oncoming traffic. They're trying to let the oncoming traffic know there's a speed trap up ahead. So you see a cop on the road and they, they let cars know as they're approaching it, watch out. Uh, I don't remember 
what all the, I, I read some articles last night. And I got some conflicting information. I'm not sure what the actual system of communication is. No idea. But I, I, I really had absolutely no idea that there was these secret signals, like these smoke signals that truck drivers are sending up to each other. I do remember I had a couple of friends in college who had a CB radio and they went on road trips and they ended up talking to truck drivers, which I forgot about that. Like next time I drive across the country, I may try and get my hands on a cheap CB radio somewhere and then just put that in my car and have it and try and strike up conversations with the drivers. I wonder if that's still a thing. That was like 20 years ago. CB radio technology might be like like ham radio. Maybe truck drivers don't use that stuff anymore. It's just there's a few passionate hobbyists. I wonder. I wonder if it's even worth the trouble. Maybe they're all just texting each other. No, then they'd have to know each other. I, want, I, I wonder if that, that's still a thing. I, I should look that up. Anyway. Yeah, CB radios. I remember my friends were asked, like, talking with a truck driver. And they had a lot of conversations with one particular guy. They were just chatting about this and that. And at some point they mentioned, like, yes, we're, we're college students. We go to, like, Western and Michigan State. Uh, and the truck driver was like, that's pretty good. Make sure you get a degree because I dropped out of college without getting a degree and I'm driving a truck. So please don't, uh, make sure you see that through. I kind of thought about, like, I, I'd like to understand exactly what truck drivers are saying to each other and understand the, the etiquette of the road because I thought about those things scare the hell out of me. Not driving next to them, like I'm generally comfortable. Like I don't drive in their blind spots. But if it were my job to drive one of those things, Jesus, man, like you, like, I can't even imagine Like you, you have to like allow a lot of time to stop. You're constant, like suddenly like traffic merging onto the highway during rush hour while you are on it. That suddenly becomes this huge stressful thing. Like right now, if you're a car, I hit rush hour traffic. I pretty much know what to do. There, there's very little that's going to come my way that I don't expect. I just sort of expect the worst. That's that's how I drive safely. I mentioned this last time. You just you're just pessimistic. You just assume everyone around you might do something dumb at any point. And you're pretty much safe then. Just get ready to react to something you don't expect. Expect the unexpected. That should be the first thing they teach you in driver's ed if if, if you ask me. The, We'll teach you the rules, follow the rules, but expect that most people around you are not going to be following the rules. Just plan for that. You'll probably be fine. But there's, I'm pretty comfortable like driving the tiny little car, you know, or a van or something. But if I was driving a semi truck, like an 18 wheeler with a delayed brake system, and the brakes really don't stop you because you have all this momentum because you're dragging a gigantic cargo bed full of chicken, like frozen chicken in the back or whatever the hell you're hauling, that would that would be a whole lot of stress. I'm sure you get used to it. It probably sounds stressful like anything, 
And once you do it for like a few months, you get you get a handle for it, okay? But you know, like anything, that's how I know I'm getting like older, like I'm approaching middle age. Because I think like, oh, if I do that thing and it's new and I'm not used to it, it's gonna freak me out. Like I'm, I feel less inclined to just jump in and try something new because I'm like, I might screw it up. I don't know. Maybe that doesn't mean I'm I'm getting old. I don't really understand the whole like people say that they're getting old. Like I like. Uh, I feel so old. That's how I know I'm getting old. Like, on the one hand, I get it. It's kind of self-deprecating. Like, you're kind of poking fun at yourself. But I don't honestly mean it. I am not old. I'm 38, which is not young. But it ain't old, either. I don't understand people saying, oh, I'm getting up to 40. That's so old. Like, relative to what? Yeah, you're not 25 anymore. I'm glad you can, like figure that out. You can do the math. But I mean, do the math the other way. You're not 60 yet either. You can still go out and run without consulting the doctor, probably. You can go do exercise. You can try new stuff. Go be a truck driver. It won't stress your nervous system to the point where you have like a stroke. Anyway, it was kind of, kind of annoys me. I actually wonder how I sound. Like this is actually a very modern problem. You you you've heard this before. Like this happens to most people where they they hear themselves speak their whole lives. And at some point somebody records their voice and plays it back and they say, "Oh, I don't sound the way I thought I did. Like your voice recorded doesn't sound the way you sound inside of your own head when you are talking. There's a very simple reason for this. I remember reading about this somewhere, but when you hear your own voice inside of your head, most of it is reaching your ears uh, through bone conduction. It's traveling through Uh, your bone structure and then hitting your eardrums. Whereas if somebody else hears you, it's your voice traveling through the air. And so you sound different to yourself than you sound to other people. This was not a problem that the ancients faced. People were not sitting around in ancient Greece or whatever, like they wouldn't hear themselves be recorded and say, oh, do I, I don't sound like that, do I? This is like only with the telephone, not the telephone, the telephone just transmitted sound. What came first? Was transmitting sound, did that come first or did recording sound come first? I don't, okay, I don't know when it was. Uh, about 150 years ago, maybe, we devise a means of recording technology. That's the start of this problem. That's the first time anybody realized, oh yeah, because how else would you know? Unless you have the ability to record yourself and play it back, you wouldn't realize that you sounded differently. Like nobody was aware of this until like within the last century or so. Anyway, I do, I do wonder, I do wonder if you could go the other way. 
So the thing is, I can very easily record myself and figure out what it is I actually sound like to other people. And I'm like anyone else. No, I absolutely hate my voice. I've become very, very accustomed to the voice that I hear in my head. You know, the way I sound to myself when I talk. But right now, I know how I sound. I'm totally okay with that. When I play this back, I'm going to be like, oh, God, really? No. I just sound annoying. I think my voice sounds annoying. I really wish I forced myself to talk deeper. But, yeah. Whatever, you're listening to this. But I, I wonder if you could go the other way. So somebody else... I know what they sound like, but I have no idea what they sound like inside of their own head. Like, I don't know what any other person sounds like to themselves. So I wonder if there would be some way of processing the audio of somebody's voice so that you can basically hear, you can adjust the sound wave so that it sounds to you like you're listening to them talk as if you were them. Like, how do they sound to themselves in their own head? Could that be done? Could you reverse the process with technology. That would be an interesting plug-in right now with everybody working remotely and everybody's using Zoom to communicate. Create some sort of plug-in so you can hear people talk and they will sound to you like they all sound to themselves. This is probably not, I don't, this is not a very, I don't know why, this is not a very good idea. I don't know what the point would be of developing such a thing. Like, what what use is that? This is the problem. I have useless ideas. Like, there's no way you could build a business around that. No one would care. I do wonder, though. I wonder if there's some way of... Yeah, first of all, there's no way of capturing... You would First of all, you'd have to figure out what the difference is in the sound waves. So if you could somehow capture what someone sounds like to themselves and themselves recorded, if you did that with enough people, you could eventually figure out what's the difference. Like how does bone conduction and air conduction, how do those differ when they're transmitting voices? And then you could figure out how to adjust an air sound wave so it sounds like it's coming through bone. There's probably a way of doing that, but it's probably not worth the trouble. At least not economically. I mean, scientists... Read about scientific studies, and you're kind of like, I don't think that scientists are really considering the practical ramifications of the things that they are doing. Which is good. That's really not the point. You know, I think... If scientists had been preoccupied with how they were going to use radio waves when they were coming up with that whole thing. Like, how are we going to monetize this? Might not have happened. It's all just a curiosity. And sometimes there's economic benefits. I remember watching a documentary about the Higgs boson. Uh, One of the physicists who was working on the project and the Large Hadron Collider was giving a press conference and somebody was saying, well, what, what, what is the benefit going to be of all this? If you guys discover the Higgs boson and confirm the standard model, you find the last piece of this puzzle and it's all, like, how is that going to, what are you going to use that for? And he was kind of like, we have no idea. 
that's not the reason for science. I mean, that, that often is the incentive for a lot of scientific funding, but that is not the primary driver of everything. Sometimes it's just curiosity. Can I do this? I remember reading in high school, like some scientists took a lump of jello and hooked it up to an EEG machine, something for detecting brain activity, and they found that there's as much activity detected by one of those machines in a lump of jello as there is in a brain. I don't know exactly what it is that drove scientists to do that. They just, they, they're, they're sitting around with all this equipment. They've got some jello. Like, what if? How do you think of something like that? What makes you think? That would be an interesting question to ask and to have an answer to. The answer is, is useless, but, you know, utility is, I, I don't, don't think that it's not the point. So maybe somebody's done this. Actually, I, I haven't Googled this. I'm actually surprised. I think of weird crap like this. Like, could you actually like make somebody's voice sound like it would to them? I Google it and then somebody's like four or five people have done it. I go, yeah, I did it in JavaScript and I threw it up on a website here. And just record their voice and play it back and it'll sound to you like their voice sounds to them. This is like the truth of the internet, is that everything has been done. Anything you can think of has already been thought of. I think I might have mentioned this previously. But that was what the internet was for me. When I, when I, was, in, when I was in high school, I really, I really liked the Smashing Pumpkins. They were kind of like my... Between, between junior and senior year, they were kind of like my band. I used to just hold myself up in my room with my headphones and just listen to them. And I used, I did that to process a lot of, you know, emotional teenage angst. It was kind of like what got me through some difficult times, uh, which sounds silly in hindsight, or hindsight, but that's, eh, you know, teenagers are teenagers. That's, that's what you do. But I do remember partway through 11th grade uh, when this was going on, I was just going around the internet, just sort of bumping into stuff. I think the, I think the internet was more interesting in those days, to be honest. Like you had GeoCities, people were kind of just learning HTML at the time, like learning how to style things. Like it, it wasn't, it wasn't a great experience. It wasn't a consistent experience. It wasn't a, an aesthetically appealing experience, but it was an interesting one. Like people were at least expressing themselves in a way that wasn't just a Facebook page or a Twitter account. Like the limited ways you can express yourself via current social media platforms, like there's this regimented structure to things and that's how you put yourself out there. That's how you disseminate your ideas. It's a lot less interesting. Pros and cons to that, but 
I feel like it was it was easier to like stumble upon somebody and they built their own website. And maybe it's not that great looking, but you kind of get a sense of, okay, I, I know who this person is. I can kind of sense who they are by the way they're expressing themselves, how they've laid this whole thing out. There was more just readily apparent depth to things. I don't quite know how to express it. But I remember coming across a webpage, like I'm stumbling around looking for stuff on the, on the Smashing Pumpkins. And of course they, I'm not even sure they had an official site at that point. I don't think that was something bands did quite yet. Uh, there's an ah, see, keeps coming out. Terrible tick. But I came across like a fan page. Somebody just saying like, here, I like, I like the pumpkins and I'm going to throw up their lyrics in case you need their lyrics. Uh, there it is again. Yeah, that seemed to be what people did when you were really, really big fan of a band in the nineties, you would just put their lyrics up online. It's not quite what I'm talking about in terms of self-expression. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, so I came across somebody and they were basically saying on their about page, like, hi, I'm so-and-so. I really like the pumpkins, hence I've created this this fan website. And I have to say that I owe it to them. Like me hunkering down in my room, listening to their, their music, you know, is has really, really got me through some hard times. And I remember reading that and thinking, like, this sounds exactly like me. Like, I could have written this thing. There's this person who's just in the middle of, I don't know where, I don't remember where they were. They were somewhere in some other state all the way across the country, out west somewhere. I want to say New Mexico. And I was coming from the experience of, I'm in high school. I really don't feel like I can relate to people around me. I definitely don't get the sense that people, my classmates, I don't get the sense they can relate to me. I'm not really feeling included in the whole human experience as far as school and or really anything goes. You know, that, that whole teenager thing, you're just kind of confused about your place in the world. Where do I, where am I supposed to fit in? But this is I realized, okay, I've kind of had this delusion of myself, like this sort of narcissistic take that I am some wildly unique person. I like this band in a way that no one else does. You know, it's meaningful to me. And I'm special because of that. It just, it really felt, you know, that, that's, the, that's the folly of you. You just think, I'm, I'm special, you know. And this website shattered that. I was like, this this actually, this is what the internet is going to do. People are going to realize I'm not unique. It made me realize that. I realized whatever, whatever you might think you are thinking that no one else in the world might be thinking, that's not true. Right then and there, that entire, that entire thought was just a crack appeared in it. I can't say I've gotten over the narcissism. I'm still... I'm still a little bit too inclined to believe that what I think or what I feel is somehow wholly unique to me. I think our, our egos just sort of demand that to some extent. You can't wipe that out completely. 
but I do remember coming across this and thinking, this is, this is going to change things. At the very least, it changes things for me. I, I really shouldn't go into the world thinking and acting like I'm somehow special. Inwardly, I still think I'm special, I think, but I don't go around throwing out my own opinion like whatever I think or come up with is somehow new. Like this whole podcast, me just sort of rambling about whatever. Do I think that anything that I'm talking about hasn't already been thought of? No, I don't. I don't think any of this is is unique to me. Maybe I occasionally manage to like use a set of words to express something that somebody else hasn't quite put together. There are, yeah, like the English language is quite expressive. There are many synonyms that don't need to exist to express different adjectives. Sometimes there are 20 words, but only one of them will do. But it means it's a very, very expressive thing. You can, if you're a poet, you can always find one that rhymes with the word you're trying to rhyme with, probably. If there's a subtle difference between the different words, you can pick that one and so on. So maybe you can, maybe you can strive for uniqueness of expression, but originality of content, I think, is a fool's errand. And if you think you're pulling that off, it's probably a delusion. So yeah, just about any idea I have. Oh shit. Pardon me, I'm driving and suddenly a lane ended with absolutely no warning whatsoever. That was bizarre. And there was a truck in front of me. Almost caused a... Yeah, geez, was there a sign that I missed? Said left lane ends. I'm always quick to assume that it's somebody else's fault. I really, no, I'm, I'm watching the road like crazy. I don't, okay. It's clear I'm in a work zone place. Sun is in my eyes. And it doesn't look like anybody's really clear on what's happening. There's a whole bunch of glare coming off the road. I'm going to get over the right and just chill at a low speed and cruise for a while until this is this is over. Ah. Okay, where where was I? What was I, what was I talking about? Oh, so I hit the road at six this morning. Not quite three or four in the morning, but early enough that I feel like I'm. I might actually reach Detroit today, so I'm. I'm on track to hit my destination in the next eight hours or so. It's about a day's drive from where I am. And I'm kind of trying to think about if there's any... Like with COVID going on, this has been sort of a problem. Like I'm going back to crash with my parents. And they're definitely in the at-risk population. And for the last week or so, I've been scrambling to get myself ready to move. Like it's been, I've had to do a whole ton of things. And I think it's, even in San Francisco where people are being cautious, in the last week or so, I've had more contact with people who are not really being careful about the shelter in place. Uh, like mask order. 
than I have the entire time during the entire pandemic. You know, if you're, if you're just sort of being out in the world on your own terms at your own pace, you have a pretty good deal of control over who it is you are interacting with. And if you come across somebody who's not wearing a mask, you can generally steer clear of them. Moving out of my building required a whole lot of coordination with a lot of different people. And there's varying levels of how seriously people are taking it with the people you encounter. And I'm currently driving across the country, and that's the same That's the same thing. I've been stopping in rural areas instead of the cities. Like, I avoid stopping in major urban centers. And I don't know if that's better or worse, like avoiding large areas like Salt Lake City or Omaha. You just stop in the middle of nowhere at a truck stop. What what I've found is that maybe one in 10 people are wearing masks out there. And so I don't know if, I don't know if it's actually safer to stop in the middle of nowhere where people might not be informed or people are more cynical about whether they should even wear masks. Um, I don't know where people are more informed given like the population density. Probably depends on the city. Somebody's probably done a study about that. Where do conspiracy theories take hold? In any case, driving across the country, yeah, there's, I've certainly come across a lot of people that are not wearing masks or doing anything. Even people with masks, they really don't seem to even try to keep six feet of distance. Like I've been in stores and I, I do make an effort to, if somebody happens to be standing right where I want to go, I just sort of mill around maybe 10 feet from them, wait for them to move on, and then I move in. But people have just cut in front of me. Like, I'm looking at the shelves or something, and they'll just breeze into the aisle and swoop past me. Or they'll just come over and stand right next to me. Like, you do understand what six feet of social distance means, right? Have we changed the definitions of words? Although I do, I do wonder if people just don't. I think people might just get lackadaisical. Like maybe your amount of caution tends to slip. I remember when I first ventured out back in May. Like I'd pretty much been holed up. Didn't leave to go outside and do anything whatsoever for two months. And you're hearing all this terrible stuff on the news People are like thousands of people have died and it's, it's shrieky. So the first time I left, I was just, I was being very, very cautious. Every single person I saw was like, you could possibly kill me. So I was going out of my way to make sure I stayed as far away from everyone as I could, trying not to let myself get cornered by anyone. Now it's a few months out. I, I've 
I have ventured out and I have to say that my standards as far as keeping distance from people have kind of relaxed. If somebody does cut in front of me, like when I'm in the store, there's they come and stand right next to me. I don't really freak out anymore. I'm kind of like, eh, you know. That is, I think, the reason why we saw a resurgence of the virus like two or three weeks ago. These people got complacent. It's not like if you go out and don't socially distance that you're going to be reprimanded from that. Like, there's no lesson there. You don't learn that there's something wrong with being lackadaisical. That lesson just isn't instilled in you. There's no reinforcement. So it's easy to just sort of become lax and you don't pay attention. So I think that might be what it is. The people... People are generally aware of things, but I think they, they're aware of standards, they're aware of what six feet is, and they have to mask up. And, but practically, if you, if you have to like go way out of your way to avoid somebody, and so far you haven't seen anybody die, it's like, well, I'm just going to cut, I'm just going to do the easy thing. I'm going to pass by you really quickly, brush by you, not touch you, you know, not cough on you, and hopefully we're fine. So I think that's what might be going on. I don't think people are, people are just conserving their energy, I think. And they're not giving a whole lot of thought. At some point it just becomes second nature and you're not consciously trying to do the precisely correct thing. Like it does not exactly six feet all the time. But anyway, I'm a little bit more worried now because if, if I get the coronavirus, I'll probably be fine. I've heard some horror stories about if you get it and you recover, even if you're young, there might be like damage to your damage to your lung tissue. If you end up with scar tissue that never goes away. I read this morning that apparently coronavirus can cause anosmia, like a loss of smell. And they're actually thinking that this might be a good way of testing uh, for the virus in places where standardized testing is not available or where it's not practical. So in airports, for example, where they're screening people, you can take their temperature and maybe you can't do a full-on spit swab test because that's not feasible. But what you could do is test their sense of smell and their sense of taste. And if they're not acute enough, if they seem to be very weakened, measurably, that differentiates from a normal cold. You do lose a bit of your sense of smell and taste if you have a, a regular cold. But evidently, there's something neurological uh, to coronavirus. It acts on the nervous system and causes a loss of smell. And that loss of smell and taste might actually be permanent. Like There are people who have gotten it, gotten coronavirus, They've come down with the nausea. It's caused, caused that. And their sense of smell never returns. It's just gone forever. Which is alarming. So there's certainly reasons I would prefer not to contract it. I'd rather, I'd much rather not have to deal with it. But if I get it and I get any of those secondary symptoms, if I lose my sense of smell, 
okay, there's some benefits to that. I've just spent the last two or three days driving through farm country across the Midwest Plains where they're growing our food. Next time I'm doing that, if I have anosmia and I can't smell anything, I'm not going to smell the cow shit that permeates large patches of the air. For example, I probably won't be able to enjoy a fine steak dinner once the cows are slaughtered. Granted. But nor will I have to endure the stench of the cow farts that the, uh, you know, the, the cows are releasing out in the fields while they're being cultivated uh, for steak. But I'm one thing, of course. I'm, I'm pretty sure I would recover from coronavirus, I'd like to think, if I got it. But I've just spent all this time and energy moving. And now I'm driving across the country encountering God knows who. Trying to minimize my stops, but still. And I'm headed right for my parents. And so I I did talk to my mom about this. I was like, how should we do this? Like when I get there, when I get to Michigan, like the Detroit area, I could put myself up in a hotel get myself tested if the test comes back negative then then I know we're in the clear like I've made it and it's safe for me to come back and crash with you guys and I'm I'm reasonably sure that even you know the hotel notwithstanding that I've stated with you know, stayed in in the meantime as long as the test comes back negative I'm pretty sure that I'm okay you know or should I just when I when I show up there, should I just socially distance for some measure of time? Like for two weeks, whatever the incubation period is. You know, we just avoid close contact until that incubation period is over. But I only want to do that once. So it's Friday. I really don't have to be back to their place until Wednesday when I have my next round of job interviews. My thinking was, is there anything that I want to do over here in the Midwest that I should do before I go home? Because I don't want to, I don't want to go to all the trouble of going home and incubating. And then a month from now, I say, well, I'd like to go out and do something like travel a bit, go out for a, a weekend and then have to drive back home and do the incubation period all over again. It would make sense to just front load that and take this weekend to go do something that I want to do and then only do the the airlock thing once. Ah. Don't know. I kind of tried to think about this. What is there in the Midwest that I would want to do as long as I'm visiting? And to be perfectly honest, I couldn't come up with things. I think that I've been completely spoiled by the Bay Area. You go there and there's just there's just a whole bunch of things to do. You get back here. Where am I now? Am I I stayed in Des Moines last night. I think I'm still in Iowa. 
probably getting pretty close to Illinois. Yeah, but maybe Chicago. I gotta think about that. Before I hit Chicago, it might be, uh, Anyway, yeah. I kind of wish I had listeners uh, to this. Like, I do kind of envy people that have podcasts that get wide listenership. What is the word for that? Because then they can just ask questions. They can say, hey, I'm curious about this. Tell me your opinion about this or that random obscure thing. And more than likely, they're probably going to get an answer. Granted, if they say anything the least bit controversial or not politically correct or something that just puts someone off, that comes with having a wide audience as well. The wider you cast your net, the more likely you're going to have people who just get incensed at nothing. People are very, very touchy. Yeah, I really find it pretty off-putting. This was something I discovered in, in San Francisco. Like, I, I am... The thing is, is I'm politically centrist. And for the most part, I've generally considered myself to be pretty liberal. Traditionally, that's what I've always identified as. San Francisco, people there are really, really liberal. And I was really surprised, like, conversations I would have with people. It, like, so the idea that capitalism is inherently racist, for example, something radical like that. So capitalism is bad because it causes racism or allows racism to flourish, some measure of that. Um, I think that's a pretty... Those are two very complex issues, and they require being picked apart very, very carefully. And I certainly don't deny that an economic system set up by human beings who are generally racist anyway is going to embody some racism. But it's complicated. It's, it's one of those things that you really can't make broad sweeping statements without being very careful and qualifying each point that you're making and tying them together with great caution. It's... It's very difficult to get that sort of thing into a soundbite and have it make sense. And so, like, I encounter people who have these sorts of opinions. Capitalism sucks because it's racist. And I'm like, well, I think it's more complicated than that. And they kind of look at you like, well, you don't agree with me. I, I don't like that at all. You know, like, it's not okay to have a dissenting view about this opinion. I'm not saying that's everyone, but I encountered more people than I expected. Like I honestly, this is the thing. Like I of course there is intolerance on both sides, but I've always identified as being, you know, more of a democrat than a than a republican, I think. I think I'm more liberal than conservative. I'm not sure. But I am I've always traditionally thought of myself as being more liberal. That's how I generally identify. And so I'm more critical of people on the left when they're intolerant because I'm like, come on, you should be better. 
I expect more from you. I don't know why. Like they're they're humans, just like people on the right. But I'm kind of like, come on, you should be better than this. Be more, understand that people are going to disagree with you and understand that that's not a problem. You know, besides, I think I tend to agree with liberals more than I do conservatives, depending on the issue. Uh, Just because there's some subtlety, like there's some finer points that I disagree with you on, this is somehow a problem. And of course, I'm going to steer away from politics for a second, but there was, there was a girl that I met on one of the dating apps and we were having, I think it was on our first phone conversation, our very first phone date. This was during COVID. So it was a phone thing. And she asked me who my favorite stand-up comedian was. And I was like, gotta be honest, it's Louis C.K. And she was kind of like, oh, really? Still? I just kind of disgusted because of the whole, you know, his whole scandal thing. The reason he's now in hiding and not being distributed on major platforms anymore. And I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, like I I understand the, the, what happened, but, you know, I haven't found anyone else that I like uh, more than him. Like he's he's very, very good. Like, I'm definitely looking around, you know? It certainly would be nice to have an answer to that question that wouldn't offend people like that, people like you, the person I'm talking to, you know? But for right now, I, I, I'm most impressed with him. He seems to, like, have the most widely accessible material. It seems to be... It touches on the dark parts of humanity, but it's still wildly funny. Like, I really appreciate the work he does. I can relate to it. And this, of course, was the wrong answer. This was not a good answer for her. And so I was, of course, curious. I, I of course, understand this. If I say I like somebody that has done something that offends you as an artist, you know, in their personal life, they've done something that you don't like, I, I, I get it. I have no problem with that. I can, I can see people being offended by what he did. And to be honest, it kind of bothers me, but it doesn't bother me enough that I've decided to just cut him out of my life and not consume him anymore, like not listen to his stuff. I do remember having a friend in in college who used to take me to task when I listened to music that he didn't like because he would criticize the people, like who the people were in the band. Like, well, that person just seems like they just seem dumb. I don't like their music because I don't like who they are as a person. I refuse to support them. I refuse to support their music because I don't like who they are as individuals. I never really understood this because you don't, you don't know who anyone is. Like you can kind of glean from some public reportings who a celebrity is. And maybe based on that, you can, you can kind of put together enough of an opinion to understand whether or not you want to Like, at the extremes, I can appreciate this. Like, if you say, I refuse to listen to Bill Cosby because of what he did, that, I I don't think that's very controversial. I don't think there's any wiggle room there. 
he's clearly a scumbag who's taken advantage of people, who abused his power as a celebrity. And really, it would be impossible for me to listen to Bill Cosby without thinking about that with every single word that came out of his mouth. All the enjoyment would just drain out of what he was saying. I would find myself pressuring myself like not to laugh. That you shouldn't laugh at this guy. To laugh at him just to support something that's just just heinous. So I, I completely appreciate it. If that's the way people feel about Louis C.K., like if somebody says, you know, I'm really put off by listening to him because it reminds me of this this terrible piggish thing that he did. I get that. And I respect it. You know, at the very least, I won't, you know, I won't, uh, I won't play it for somebody if that's, if that's what they say. Like, look, I really can't listen to that because. But I do remember having this conversation during this, during this phone date. And I was kind of like, okay, well, I, I do want to hear your perspective on this. You know, like, what uh, what would you say measurably about Louis C.K.? And she kind of, she walked me through it. And she was kind of like, I just, I don't think he's done enough. Like, he's come out and apologized. He admitted to what he did. He kind of talked about it in his last act. He touched upon it briefly. But she was like, I don't think he's done enough to win back women to his audience. And I was like, I, that's that's fair. I think I might at least partially agree with that. What I think she meant, at least the way I interpreted it, is that Louis C.K. hasn't done enough to win back you as an individual. And from your perception, like women shouldn't support him because he hasn't quite made enough amends yet. Something like that. So I... I conceded her point. I was like, I can appreciate your position. I get it. But none of what you said applies to me. I'm not a woman, and I'm not incensed by what he said. No, I didn't say that. The thing is, I held that back, which should be a concern. Like, I was thinking that to myself. I was thinking, the thing is, what you just said to me doesn't change a single thing for me. My behavior, my, my relationship to this comedian is not going to change because of what you just said. But I didn't say that. Because I sensed, you know what, if I do say that, it's going to become a discussion. It will be elaborated upon. And based on the way the conversation went, I came away from it thinking, someday this will be a problem. Someday if I, if we become if we're dating and I have my headphones in and I'm listening to Louis C.K. and you turn to me and say, hey, what are you listening to? If I were to answer that honestly, then it would become an issue. She would bring it back up. She would say, I, I just had the sense. She would say at that point, hey, we talked about this. I don't like him. He offends me. Why, why aren't you respecting what I want? You know, why are you supporting this guy and listening to him when you know I don't like him? 
I just had this, this gut feeling that's what it will be. It'll become some kind of issue down the line. And that I really, that I was like, yeah, this is, this is, this is what I don't understand. I don't understand why someone else's values have to be my values, even if it's somebody that I'm dating. At some point, yeah, okay. Maybe we should agree that Bill Cosby's a scumbag, but there's a lot of gray area in between that. And I don't understand why people are always trying to force a wedge uh, to try and drive you closer to their own position. Really, what's it to you? Like, pick your battles is, I think, the advice I would give to most people. And understand that most battles are not that important. They're pretty trivial. You can let most things go and not make a federal issue out of everything. But like I said, I respect, I respect the differences. Another thing, this is, I, I, another thing that I did not get, I did not understand from this same girl that I talked to. She was talking about the presidential candidates. So briefly after, Joe Biden got the Democratic nomination. So basically on the 2020 ticket, we all know it's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. And she was telling me, I can't believe it was Joe Biden. He's, you know, he's been accused of sexual assault, so he's guilty of sexual assault. And I just, I can't vote for either one of them because they're both sexual assault perpetrators. I was like, well, don't you have to vote for, like, one of them? And she's like, no, I, I really can't bring myself to do it. I can't have it on my conscience, my conscience, that, that I can't talk. This really, I can't have it on my conscience that I've ever voted for somebody who was accused of sexual assault or who clearly is some sort of, uh, somebody who's guilty of that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, if you're going to abstain from voting because of that, then maybe I should too. And she was like, no, 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 please, you have to vote. She's like, you have to vote for Joe Biden because it can't be Donald Trump. But I just personally can't, I can't bring myself to vote for either one of them. Now, I don't care about the whole, I can appreciate her, her position where she says she doesn't want to vote for somebody who probably has some less than enlightened relations with women in their past. I think if that's your principle, like on principle, that might preclude you from voting for a lot of potential candidates, maybe most of them, but that's a separate issue. What I found jarring was that she was saying, like, I can't bring myself to do this personally because I find it morally reprehensible. But I want you to do something different than I would insist for myself. So I'm holding you to a different standard. Like, I don't care if you vote for somebody who's guilty of sexual assault. In fact, you have to because the lesser of two evils and that whole thing. But... Yeah, I don't have to elaborate on that. Point is made. I really don't like it when somebody says to me, I need you to do something that I'm unwilling to do myself. 
like unless you're paying me or unless it's something you can't do yourself like people say hey you're a really tall guy please get this thing down on the top the top shelf for me okay fine but ethics are really shaky ah yeah anyway that clearly that that relationship did not go anywhere uh, not for those reasons but i those would those things and more would have been problematic had this continued you know to be honest i don't actually know much about joe biden and his uh supposed charge of of sexual assault it's as i don't know if somebody has brought an accusation against him and i don't know if it's been substantiated i kind of don't want to know for the simple reason that i am going to vote for him and not not the incumbent so i what election is this I first started tracking presidential elections in 1996, and I was 14 at the time. So there's been maybe half a dozen presidential elections that have happened as long as I've been old enough to be roughly aware of what's going on culturally. And from what I can remember, the whole lesser of two evils, like the, the, the sentiment that you hear every single election that okay they both suck but you have to choose the one that sucks less that that's precisely the point that has been the case every single time i keep hearing people say that every 4 years like oh they're both terrible candidates i don't like either one but i have to pick one so i'm going to pick the one that sucks least god why can't we pick somebody who's actually good People have been saying this as long as I can remember. This has always been the line. It's the standard. So this is nothing new. It's not like we've had great candidates. Like at some point in the past, the good old days, there were two great candidates, and we had to say which one was better. No, there's always been the sentiment of. <laughs> they both suck pick the one that sucks less like this is this is not a new and i i tom peters the business writer who uh, is most well noted for his in search of excellence i saw him tweet on twitter uh i've been voting participating in elections for the last 56 years and the whole pick the candidate who sucks least that is that has been the norm in the dialogue for the last 56 of 56 years yep It's validating to hear that it's not just me in the last uh, 20 years or so. Yeah. This goes back probably to the very beginning of the country. I imagine Jefferson and Adams they're running against each other in 1800. Yep, same deal. Nothing ever changes. Let's see what else is going on. What is going on? I'm just trying to figure out what I can actually talk about. 
You know, I think that's what I would do. Getting back to the whole... Like, if I could take a tape recorder back to, let's say, ancient Greece, I would record, like, Socrates talking to himself, or talking... I'll just record him talking about something. One of his dialogues. Like, he's asking some people some annoying questions. And just record him and then play his voice back. And I wonder if it would freak him out. He would say, like, oh, I I do not sound anything like I thought I did. Does my voice... Why does my voice sound different? I wonder if he would have to go off in a corner and just stop and think. Like the way he used to do. Like the way he was reputed to do. Like if he suddenly came across a philosophical argument that he just couldn't deal with or couldn't process, he'd have to go stop and just sit in the corner for like hours thinking it through. I wonder if that's what he would do. He'd be like, wow, you just captured my voice and played it back and I don't sound the same on the... Actually, I guess they... That technology would probably be alien enough to them if you went back to ancient Greece and recorded people's voices and played it back to them, like they heard their own words in something that sounded roughly like their own voice playing back to them, they would just think you were some kind of sorcerer. They would probably just carry you to the top of Mount Olympus and throw you off of it or whatever the hell they used to do to, to heretics back in the day. Like, he's a witch. Kill him. I wonder how this squares with the Bible, too. Like, if you read the Ten Commandments, first of all, there's... It's not like there's ten neat little rules. Like, it says, here are the ten rules, and there's ten verses neatly stacked. No. There's... There are ten rules roughly stated in Exodus 20. And then it kind of spills over into Exodus 21, which is an entire chapter about rules related to ox corn. So if you own a a bull or an ox and it kills one of your fellow Israelites should you be held accountable. There's an entire chapter devoted to the rules around this. I would have thought, call me crazy, but if you're going to devote like an entire chapter to the nuances of when somebody should be held accountable, maybe thou shalt not kill that might call for an entire chapter. Let's let's be subtle and nuanced about that. Thou shalt do no murder. You could certainly elaborate on that a, a little bit more. I don't think ox goring is quite that important. But then it spills over into Exodus 22, where there's a whole bunch of crazy rules. Like anybody who has anyone who has sex with an animal must be put to death. I definitely think we should be including that in, in the front lawn of courthouses carved in stone if you're going to ask me. But there's also one that says, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Exodus 22:18. So my question is, do people believe in witches? Like people who read the Bible, like if you're going to like say that this is something that is true, like this is a rule, don't you have to kind of, as a presupposition, don't you have to believe in witches then? Otherwise, the rule isn't valid. Otherwise, the rule is just, it's, it's wacky. 
So if you're going to be a Christian and say, yeah, witches are just nonsense, they're just, they're people who have their own section in a bookstore that's full of hokum. If you're going to dismiss it there, then aren't you, aren't you dismissing what the rule is supposedly based on? You either have to accept that there are witches, which most Christians don't do, to accept the rule. Or you have to reject it, in which case you reject that part of scripture. Don't quite understand it. Like, people are, modern Christians are actually very, very cynical. They're very uneasy around ancient methods of divination. Like, they don't seem to like astrology. They think there's something, they seem to think there's something satanic in it. But I mean, it was the, the Magi found their way to the place where Jesus was born using a star. They were using the heavens. A sign in the heavens took them to where the newborn king was. In the Old Testament, there are numerous examples of people consulting what sound like modern-day psychics. They're reading the entrails of chickens. Go talk to a, you know, a, a prophetess who does something, uh, who knows what, um, to sort of divine what, what God's will is. How did they figure out who to replace Judas with in the book of Acts? Uh, they cast lots. They basically roll some dice and say, well, between these candidates, who does, who does God want? Let's, let's gamble and figure it out very, very strange that people have distanced themselves from these aspects of, of our culture. Uh, when they're clearly used in the ancient world, I don't understand how they've become anathema. I've looked into astrology, actually. I'm very, very curious about how that is done. And astrology is very, very complicated. It's more complicated than I originally gave it credit for. It's actually the kind of thing that I'd like to look at it and say, okay, this this is obviously just nonsense. At least I'm inclined to do that as a scientific, generally scientific-minded kind of individual. And I certainly think that, you know, if you're writing horoscopes for a newspaper, yeah, there's nothing substantive there. Probably just, I don't imagine there's a very complex process to writing those things out. I would guess. But astrology itself, past that, if you're actually going to like build a natal chart for somebody, that is incredibly complicated. And there are a lot of aspects to it that I do not understand. Some of which are called aspects. I mean, it's a question of where the planets are in relation to each other. 
where the constellations are in relation to each other, where the planets are in relation to constellations. There are things called nodes. Don't even ask me what the hell those things are. It is really complicated. Like, if if you're going to... Basically, in order to dismiss it, you'd have to study it. You'd have to do all this legwork to study it and figure it out. And then say, okay, I reject it because. You'd have to make, you'd have to build this massive case against it. And honestly, I don't think I can. I I think that's why science doesn't see astrology as being a, a valid means of divination because it isn't falsifiable. Like there's always elements of it that kind of could be right. Which I think might be the point. I talked a little bit about projection last time, the idea that there's things going on inside of you and you sort of put those onto the outside world You see things in the world that aren't really there, but they're in your head. Or you ascribe motives to other people that aren't there, but you just assume that they're there because they're in you somehow. And I think that's what something like I've always thought that that's something, that, that's like what astrology is. Even the horoscopes written by newspaper people, even if those are nonsense and they mean nothing, you, you could read any of those horoscopes and probably they're general enough to apply to you. It doesn't matter what your sign is. Just pick one at random and it probably sounds good enough. There was an experiment that uh, James Randi did, who's a noted skeptic. He he had a classroom full of students. I think there's a video of this on YouTube. Where he handed out people's uh, horoscopes to them. He got everybody's sign. And he said, okay, here is your daily horoscope. And he passed out the papers. And he said, please read them to yourselves. Uh, don't talk with your neighbors. Just sort of look at it. And I'm going to, you know, I've... Read it over, then we'll reconvene in a few minutes. So a few minutes later, he says, I want you to raise your hand if you felt like the horoscope that you read for yourself was accurate. And just about everybody raised their hand. They're like, yeah, it's, you know, sounds right to me. And then he says, okay, well, the twist here is that all of you got the same thing. It doesn't matter what your sign is. The text is exactly the same like for everyone in the classroom. Which, of course, you see coming. Like that. That's, of course, how you point out that this is nonsense. But even then, even then, does it not have value? That's what I'm curious about. Like, if you approach it like you're hoping that something in the newspaper is going to tell you exactly what to do, then it doesn't work. Of course it doesn't work. Of course the newspaper is not going to be able to answer a difficult question for you. Nobody can answer the difficult questions in your life, save for you. But I think the point is that you, if you read the text, it sort of externalizes something that is only internal. Like suddenly you have these words you're reading that offer some structure to things that are just sort of lodged in your brain that might be difficult to give voice to yourself.
and even then, even then, I think that they have value. Um, but it's all a matter of how you use it. I think I've made that point before, too. I think I've talked about tarot. Tarot cards are, I think, very much the same. I do tarot card readings, not because I think the heavens are trying to tell me anything, and I certainly don't try to predict the future, but it's a matter of just trying to get my... It's sort of a new-agey equivalent to morning coffee. Like, let's just get my brain up and running for the day and structure my thoughts in a certain way. Anyway... I think I'm approaching the Iowa-Illinois border, and I think there's going to be like a some sort of change. I'm going to have to change highways, or at the very least be very careful that I don't accidentally jump on the wrong highway. So I might jump off pretty quickly here. End road work. I didn't know that there was road work going on. When the hell did that start? I swear, these the, the signs are lacking on the road. I feel like that's the third time this morning I've been just driving along, everything looks normal, and all of a sudden I hit end roadwork signs. Like, when did the roadwork start? It keeps ending, but it never starts. Where a buddy of mine got uh, pulled over in high school, uh, and the cop was asking him, uh, Did you realize that you're driving through a work zone? You know, there's there's work going on, construction work. And my friend looked over and said, yeah, like, I see that there's cones, but it's the middle of the night and nobody is working. Kind of a snarky answer. And the cop was like, well, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's a construction area. It's a workplace. The reduced speed limit applies regardless. So he got some sort of ticket for it. And I feel like that's... That's what it's been. I've been driving for the last two, three days now. And I've hit a lot of what you might loosely regard as construction zones. But there's almost nobody working. It looks like they just threw a bunch of orange cones on the side of the road. Like there's, there's work equipment scattered around. And there's a bunch of signs that say, if we catch you speeding, we're going to charge you triple the whatever. Fines are going to be increased. Uh, but nobody's actually working. I don't understand why this is... If you're doing it to protect the people that are working, that I understand. I remember in... in I always see those signs on the side of the highway that say, like, if you injure or kill a construction worker, then there's a fine of, like, $7,500 and maybe a year in prison, like, and or a year in prison. Like, it's, it's a conjunction. It's not a, it's not both of these things. But like, that's got to suck. If you're a construction worker, basically, there is a dollar value assigned to your life, and it's something lowball, like 7500 bucks. Like, could I do that in advance? Could I just go to court and say, hey, I want to kill a construction worker. Can I just pay, like, $7,500? Hell, I'll throw in an extra grand for your trouble for the paperwork. 
just give me the pass. I'll go find, I'll go find one and kill one today. You know, he'll run them over with my car. Really weird when you bring monetary value into somebody's life. Ah. I suppose I should, I should caveat this. Of course, I'm always worried that anything I say, like I want to go kill a construction worker, it might be taken out of context. This is the problem with the internet, is that context is everything, and it's almost impossible to establish context if somebody cherry-picks what you say later and holds it against you. I think that's everyone's fear. That's the kind of sort of Kafka-esque sense that we all have now being on the internet is that someday something that we said will be cherry-picked and thrown up on a screen somewhere in front of a jury and a lawyer is using this to try and establish, you know, a character point, whatever they, they're trying to like build you up as a criminal. And I feel like if you go back in anybody's social media, if you've been on there interacting regularly for 10, 15 years, there's probably something out there that can be used to incriminate you. Or at the very least, can be used to paint you in a negative light. And there's really no way of mounting a counter defense to that. I think it's difficult to do. You can say, like, look, it was a joke. If you can even remember what context you said it in. Like, I was making something, I was making a point that wasn't meant to be taken literally. I was joking. You know, please don't look at me as somebody who wants to commit murder. So even though I I might, I'm doing this whole thing, recording all of these things and putting them out there for consumption... Somewhere I'm sure that there's a robot in a government building that's transcribing all of this stuff and loading it into a database and it's being combed by some sort of bot doing dragnet sweeps for, I don't know, looking for mentions of uh, terrorist groups, that sort of thing. I know that's going on. So it doesn't really matter. Like if I say something mildly controversial as a joke, talking about construction workers, even if I hedge it and say, like, look, this is a joke, the footnote is not going to make it into court in all of our feared scenarios. I'm not even sure that there's a point in hedging. I think it just ruins the content. People who are listening to it, they know it's a joke. But I don't know. That that's I'm really very glad that I'm not famous. Like the way the world has gone nowadays, I'm absolutely stunned. When I of course when I was in high school, I learned how to play guitar. I had dreams about being in a band because what do you want? What every like teenage guy wants who's sort of countercultural, you want to be in a band and like change the world with your music and become notorious be lauded for your skills and uh, all this, all that stuff. I am so glad, like grateful every second of every day 
that what I say and do and produce out there in the world pretty much just languages, languishes, there we go, in obscurity. Most of what I say never sees the light of day. Like maybe three or four people are going to listen to this. Maybe. And probably not even more than 10 minutes in. And that's, that's really best case scenario. As soon as you have more people listening to you, the more people that are going to lash out at you. The, the more people who might take what you say the wrong way and give you some crap for it. I, there's a very, very famous, um, uh, what would you call her, blogger? Kathy Sierra. She used to talk about how to create good software that people love. She was a very early blogger on the internet, and she put out very, very good content about how to create good software very early on. It was excellent. And she ended up having to jump off the internet. She closed down her blog because she kept getting trolled. She was a woman blogger on the internet in the very early days. She had a very popular blog. And she used to get really gratuitous, horrible sexual comments. And they... It wasn't as though she was doing anything controversial. She was simply a woman on the internet. And she would get, like, death threats. People would post really lewd pictures. And I I think it got to the point where she was doxxed. Like, somebody posted her personal information online and made a very specific threat, like, I'm coming to kill you today. Not for any, not for any good reason whatsoever, just because. And so she ended up having to shut her blog down. Really, it's one of the earliest. Uh, yeah, people are just terrible. The internet is not bringing out the best in humanity. That should have been like the, the earliest sign. I think it's pretty clear now that the large network that we call the internet is not making the world a utopia the way we were sold on the idea by, you know, Silicon Valley engineers in the early days. Mark Zuckerberg's whole promise of we're just going to connect the entire world and then suddenly we'll all understand each other. Nope. It'll do what networks have always done, and that is polarize us. As it is in small networks, so it is in big ones. In any case, this Kathy Sierra had a very good post that says, how do you know that you're finally, how do you know you've finally arrived? How do you know that you've broken into the mainstream and that your software is now wildly successful? And she's like, you know once you have detractors. Because software that nobody cares about, nobody's going to criticize. Microsoft Office, Windows, those were two those were two of the most widely used pieces of software ever in their day. And people used to trash them all over the place. Now you could 
if you just focus on the, the negative comments, you would think those were really terrible things. No, they were just prevalent. And because they were prevalent, they attracted so much attention. And they got negative attention. Because they were prevalent. Like, negativity goes to what is... It seems like negativity goes to what is popular. Negativity just wants attention, I think. And there's absolutely no reason to to lambast things that nobody is aware of. So I think that's how you know you have arrived, is when you actually have people who are criticizing you for what you are saying and doing. That's how you know you are famous. As soon as people that you don't know, you've never heard of, are in large numbers not just one or two people, are going out of their way to expend energy putting you down or criticizing you or this or that. To be perfectly honest, I really hope I never cross that threshold. I don't think there's really an advantage to being famous anymore. I'm not sure that there ever has been. I remember reading a quote by Stephen King who said, being famous sucks, there is no upside. You come to realize that, yeah, everything on the buffet is free because they're planning on eating you for dessert. I think he said that in the 1980s, this was before he had a Twitter account, before anyone had anything like a Twitter account. So it's probably always been terrible. It's probably just more more pronounced now. The internet has just thrown light on a lot of things that probably should have just stayed in the dark. But it's probably thrown light on things that shouldn't have remained in the dark either. No, it's a double-edged sword. Okay. Well, let's see, my AirPods are about to die. It looks like I'm coming up to some sort of juncture. I think I want to head towards Chicago. I'm going to gather my bearings and make sure I'm headed the right direction. So, out there in pandemic land, I hope you're doing well. hope you're taking care of yourself. hope you and yours are doing good. This is Jim from The Road, signing off. You have yourself a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you next time. Cheers.